Section 2 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tina Ding. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Münsterberg. Section 2. Illusions. Part 2. I turned to a few experiments in which I showed several sheets of white cardboard, of which each contained a variety of dark and light ink spots in a somewhat fantastic arrangement. Each of these cards was shown for two seconds, and it was suggested that these rough ink drawings represented something in the outer world. Immediately after seeing one, the students were to write down what the drawing represented. In some cases, the subjects remained skeptical and declared that those spots did not represent anything but were merely blots of ink. In the larger number, the suggestion was effective and a definite object was recognized. The list of answers for one picture begins soldiers in the valley, grapes, a palace, riverbank, Japanese landscape, foliage, rabbit, woodland scene, town with towers, rising storm, shore of lake, garden, flags, men in landscape, hair in curling papers, china plate, war picture, country square, lake in the jungle, tree with stone wall, clouds, harvest scene, elephant, map, lake with castle in background, trees, and so on. The list of votes for the next picture, which had finer details, started with spider, landscape, turtle, butterfly, woman's head, bunch of war flags, ballet dancers, crowd of people, cactus plant, skunk going down a log, centipede, boat on pond, crow's nest, beetle, flower, Ireland, and so forth. There are hardly any repetitions, with the exception that the vague term landscape occurs often. Of course, we know, since the days of Hamlet and Polonius, that a cloud can look like a camel and like a whale. And yet, such an abundance of variations was hardly to be foreseen. My next question did not refer to immediate perception, but to a memory image so vividly at everyone's disposal that I assumed a right to substitute it directly for a perception. I asked my men to compare the apparent size of the full moon to that of some object held in the hand at arm's length. I explained the question carefully and said that they were to describe an object just large enough when seen at arm's length to cover the whole full moon. My list of answers begins as follows. Quarter of a dollar, fair-sized cantaloupe, at the horizon, large dinner plate, overhead, dessert plate, my watch, 
six inches in diameter. Silver dollar, hundred times as large as my watch. Man's head, fifty cent piece, nine inches in diameter. Grapefruit, carriage wheel, butter plate, orange, ten feet, two inches, one cent piece. Schoolroom clock, a pea, soup plate, fountain pen, lemon pie, palm of the hand, three feet in diameter. Enough to show again the overwhelming manifoldness of the impressions received. To the surprise of my readers, perhaps it may be added at once that the only man who was right was the one who compared it to a pea. It is most probable that the results would not have been different if I had asked the question on a moonlight night with the full moon overhead. The substitution of the memory image for the immediate perception can hardly have impaired the correctness of the judgments. If in any court the size of a distant object were to be given by witnesses. And one man declared it appeared as large as a pea at arm's distance, and the second as large as a lemon pie, and the third ten feet in diameter. It would hardly be fair to form an objective judgment till the psychologist had found out which mental factors were entering into that estimate. There were many more experiments in the list. But as I want to avoid all technicality, I refer to only two more, which are somewhat related. First, I showed to the men some pairs of colored paper squares, and they had ample time to write down which of the two appeared to them darker. At first, it was a red and a blue, then a blue and a green, and finally a blue and a gray. My interest was engaged entirely with the last pair. The gray was objectively far lighter than the dark blue, and anyone with an unbiased mind who looked at those two squares of paper could have not the slightest doubt that the blue was darker. Yet about one fifth of the men wrote that the gray was darker. Now. Let us keep this in mind in looking over the last experiment, which I want to report. I stood on the platform behind a low desk, and begged the men to watch and to describe everything which I was going to do from one given signal to another. As soon as the signal was given, I lifted with my right hand a little revolving wheel with a colored disc. And made it run and change its color, and all the time, while I kept the little instrument at the height of my head, I turned my eyes eagerly toward it. While this was going on, up to the closing signal, I took with my left hand at first a pencil from my vest pocket and wrote something at the desk. Then I took my watch out and laid it on the table. Then I took a silver cigarette box from my pocket, opened it, took a cigarette out of it, closed it with a loud click, and returned it to my pocket. 
and then came the ending signal. The results showed that 18 of the 100 had not noticed anything of all that I was doing with my left hand. Pencil and watch and cigarettes had simply not existed for them. The mere fact that I myself seemed to give all my attention to the colored wheel had evidently inhibited in them the impressions of the other side. Yet I had made my movements of the left arm so ostentatiously, and I had beforehand so earnestly insisted that they ought to watch every single movement, that I hardly expected to make anyone overlook the larger part of my actions. It showed that the medium, famous for her slate tricks, was right when she asserted that as soon as she succeeded in turning the attention of her client to the slate in her hand, he would not notice if an elephant should pass behind her through the room. But the chief interest belongs to the surprising fact that of those eighteen men, fourteen were the same who, in the foregoing experiment, judged the light gray to be darker than the dark blue. That coincidence was, of course, not chance. In the case of the darkness experiment, the mere idea of grayness gave to their suggestible minds the belief that the colorless gray must be darker than any color. They evidently did not judge at all from the optical impression, but entirely from their conception of gray as darkness. The coincidence, therefore, proved clearly how very quickly a little experiment such as this, with a piece of blue and gray paper, which can be performed in a few seconds, can pick out for us those minds which are probably unfit to report whether an action has been performed in their presence or not. Whatever they expect to see, they do see, and if the attention is turned in one direction, they are blind and deaf and idiotic in the other. Enough of my classroom experiments. Might they not indeed work as a warning against the blind confidence in the observations of the average normal man? And might they not reinforce the demand for a more careful study of the individual differences between those on the witness stand? Of course, such a study would be one-sided, if the psychologist were only to emphasize the varieties of men and the differences by which one man's judgment and observation may be counted on to throw out an opposite report from that of another man. No, the psychologist in the courtroom should certainly give not less attention to the analysis of those illusions which are common to all men and of which as yet common sense knows too little. The jurymen and the judge do not discriminate whether the witness tells that he saw in late twilight a woman in a red gown or one in a blue gown. They are not expected to know that such a faint light would still allow the blue color sensation to come in while the red color sensation would have disappeared. They are not obliged to know what directions of sound are mixed up by all of us and what are discriminated. They do not know, perhaps, 
that we can never be in doubt whether we heard on the country road a cry from the right or from the left, but we may be utterly unable to say whether we heard it from in front or from behind. They have no reason to know that the victim of a crime may have been utterly unable to perceive that he was stabbed with a pointed dagger. He may have felt it like a dull blow. We hear the witnesses talking about the taste of poisoned liquids, and there is probably no one in the jury box who knows enough of physiological psychology to be aware that the same substance may taste quite differently on different parts of the tongue. We may hear quarreling parties in a civil suit testify as to the size and length and form of a field as it appeared to them. And yet there is no one to remind the court that the same distance must appear quite differently under a hundred different conditions. The judge listens, perhaps, to a description of things which the witness has secretly seen through the keyhole of the door. He does not understand why all the judgments as to the size of objects and their place are probably erroneous under such circumstances. The witness may be sure of having felt something wet, and yet he may have felt only some smooth, cold metal. In short, every chapter and sub-chapter of sense psychology may help to clear up the chaos and the confusion which prevail in the observation of witnesses. But, as we have insisted, it is never a question of pure sense perception. Associations, judgments, suggestions penetrate into every one of our observations. We know from the drawings of children how they believe that they see all that they know really exists. And so do we ourselves believe that we perceive at least all that we expect. I remember some experiments in my laboratory where I showed printed words with an instantaneous illumination. Whenever I spoke a sentence beforehand, I was able to influence the seeing of the word. The printed word was courage. I said something about the university life, and the subject read the word as college. The printed word was Philistines, I, apparently without intention, had said something about colonial policy, and my subject read Philippines. In this way, of course, the fraudulent advertisement makes us overlook some essential element which may change the meaning of the offer entirely. Experimental psychology has at last cleared the ground and to ignore this whole science and to be satisfied with the primitive psychology of common sense seems really out of order when crime and punishment are in question and the analysis of the mind of the witness might change the whole aspect of the case. It is enough if we have to suffer from these mental varieties in our daily life at least the courtroom ought to come nearer to the truth and ought to show the way. The other organs of society may then slowly follow. It may be that, ultimately, even the newspapers may learn then from the legal practice and may take care that their witnesses be examined too 
as to their capacity of observation. Those experiments described from my classroom recommend at least mildness of judgment when we compare the newspaper reports with each other. Since I saw that my own students do not know whether a point moves with the slowness of a snail or with the rapidity of an express train, whether a time interval is half a second or a whole minute, whether there are 25 points or 200, whether a tone comes from a whistle, a gong, or a violin, whether the moon is small as a pea or large as a man, I am not surprised anymore when I read the reports of the papers. I had occasion recently to make an address on peas in New York before a large gathering to which there was an unexpected and somewhat spirited reply. The reporters sat immediately in front of the platform. One man wrote that the audience was so surprised by my speech that it received it in complete silence. Another wrote that I was constantly interrupted by loud applause and that at the end of my address, the applause continued for minutes. The one wrote that during my opponent's speech, I was constantly smiling. The other noticed that my face remained grave and without a smile. The one said that I grew purple-red from excitement, and the other found that I grew white like chalk. The one told us that my critic, while speaking, walked up and down the large stage, and the other that he stood all the while at my side and patted me in a fatherly way on the shoulder. And Mr. Dooley finally heard that before I made my speech on peace, I was introduced as the professor from the Harvard War School. But it may be that Mr. Dooley was not himself present. End of section two.